Father God, we thank you for Peter, the work he does for you. Lord God, we pray you be with him now as he speaks to us. Give him the right words to say to each one of us, Lord. And Lord, we pray that our ears, that the ears of our hearts and the eyes of our hearts might be open. We might see you and hear you in a new way today. Just thank you for this time, and we pray you bless it to us. Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Morning, everyone. Good to be back with you again. I have one or two things just to leave with you. I had a phone call yesterday. Well, I phoned, actually. The Jane Saunders, as she was. She's no longer called Jane Saunders, but Dick Saunders' daughter. And she was sharing with me that Dick's funeral service will be on the 19th of February at 1 p.m. in All Saints Church in Eastbourne. So if any of you might be interested in going, that's all the details I have at the moment. One o'clock, All Saints in Eastbourne. I know that uh, many of you may have listened to Dick in the years gone by. He passed away about a fortnight ago, and uh, we'll miss him. One other thing I want to share with you, which came to mind just during the first part of the service, which I'm very grateful for, incidentally. I was preaching in Cardiff, in one of the churches there, many years ago now. And one of the missionaries who was invited to that missionary conference was a guy called Philippe. Philippe had been a a member of a very prominent heavy metal rock band in France, playing to very large groups of folk. And uh, he had been converted just three years prior to the event at which he was speaking. And in private conversation with him, he was just sharing with me that the last heavy metal concert that he played in, uh, a man jumped up onto the stage and slashed his wrists. And that particular evening, Philippe suddenly realized that he was a purveyor, as he said to me, a purveyor of despair rather than joy. He went back to the digs he was staying in on that particular evening and one of his co-inhabitors at that time was a guy who was a chef in a local restaurant. And when Philippe came in quite distressed, obviously, about 2 a.m. that morning, the chef saw him come in and uh, he threw something onto his bed And he said, Philippe, you might like to read that. It's no use to me. And it was a French New Testament. And Philippe read it through the night and came to Christ. And when I met him, as I say, many years ago, he was working with OM in France and was being greatly used by the Lord, as you might expect. The Lord having intervened in his life in such a way. Whenever Paul was writing to the church at Colossae, he was writing to a church that he didn't know. And we began thinking last week of how he might write and what things he might say. So our reading this morning begins in Colossians 1, and we're going to read from verse 13 and read through to verse 23. Colossians 1, 13 and through to verse 23. This is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. For he has rescued us 
from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And we'll finish our reading there at the end of verse 20. He has rescued us. Just leave the text up, please, Tom. That'll be good. From verse 13. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. You'll see how that links into the story I told you about Philippe. Because there are two great contrasts in Scripture. The darkness into which we are born in our natural living. And the light and the blessings of light that we can know when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus. We're coming down the road today, obviously. Uh, And for a change, there was a patch of sunlight shining on the edge of Dartmoor. And the colours were just gorgeous. Wintry, yes, but gorgeous. The rest of the place was gloomy, as it normally is in this part of the world. And it was just quite remarkable to recognize the difference that light makes. And we just commented to one another just how beautiful it looked in that bar of sunshine. Steve has said it so eloquently. If you've never met personally with the Lord Jesus, you have really no idea what life is like with him. Because his business, and Paul is writing this to the Colossians, the business that Christ engages in, as far as you and I are concerned, is to rescue us from the oppressive dominion of darkness. And I quote the Greek accurately. The oppressive dominion of darkness from a realm which is enthralled them to the dark. I don't know if you've ever been out on a really dark night. I'm sure you have. And somehow or other managed to stumble. Or thought you were on a part of the road or street that you hadn't previously been in before. And yet, when you walked a few steps, you suddenly recognized its familiarity as you came into a patch of light. It's that sort of picture that the apostle is purveying here to these Colossian Christians. 
You know how it was, how it used to be, and Steve has shared a little of that with us. You know how it is now? That's a rescue operation. He rescues us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And you can hear the sunshine of the words, can't you? And during my meditation this week, I just sort of thinking, he has brought us. We can't deliver ourselves from darkness. Perhaps some of you have had one or two New Year's resolutions. I venture to suggest they're not quite as bright with you as they were on the 1st of January. There's only one who can rescue us from the dominion of darkness. And that's what the Savior specializes in. And God in Christ brings us into this new kingdom under a new thraldom, which is not oppressive, but which is expansive. Whenever a man and woman comes to Christ, very often they use the phrase, I see it. Suddenly recognizing that this is a transformational journey and that we are transformed into a new situation because of the work and ministry of Christ in our lives. And he brings us into this new kingdom. You'll recognize, of course, that the new kingdom has rules and regulations. I think sometimes Christians forget that. There are still rules and regulations, but they're expressed to us in grace, not in law. And so Paul, as he's writing to these Christians, wants them to have a real grasp of what has happened in their lives because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. And then he says this, in whom we have redemption. Sometimes preachers talk about redemption this buying out of our lives, this release, and talk about redemption almost as a different entity. You know, that it's something which is distinct from God in Christ. What Paul wants to make clear to these believers who have never heard a, a, an apostolic message is to say to them, listen, in whom, in, in this person, we have redemption. He doesn't give us a package Sometimes we talk about salvation as though it was distinct from the person. It's not. When you have Christ, you're saved. When you have Christ, you're redeemed. If you don't have Christ, you have neither. It is in him we have redemption. It's in the person, it's in knowing him, of accepting him, bringing him into our lives that we have the forgiveness of sins. And he expresses here the outcome of redemption. Having been redeemed, we are forgiven. And knowing Christ, this forgiveness is complete and eternal. And Steve has had a wee grasp of that when he was talking about how ongoing this joy is. And death doesn't finish it. Death expands it. Death brings us into the realm of the fullness of the Son of his love and into that place which the, the book calls heaven. What a prospect. What a thing to lay before these new Christians and say, listen, the best yet to be. And it's all in Christ. And that brings us to this great paragraph, which I feel so inadequate to even begin to expound. These marvelous verses from 15 through to 20. Alexander McLaren, who was a wonderful preacher in the Baptist churches in Manchester at the end of the 19th century, once said about John chapter 1, 
in that great passage that begins John chapter 1. I am no more able to expound this than I am to have a real glimpse of the Godhead. That's a great phrase, isn't it? I'm no more able to expound this than I am to have a glimpse of the Godhead. But Paul earths this particular passage in a remarkable way. And I want, with the Lord's help, just to try to portray something of the glory of Christ. How can Christ do all this? How can he release us from the dominion of darkness and bring us into this new kingdom? How can we have redemption in him? Because of who he is. You know, people sometimes think, well, and say, well, I believe Jesus was a good man. That's the biggest insult you could give to the Lord Jesus. If he's just a good man, he's no use. And I say that really carefully. He has to be more than man in order to lay his hand on God so that you and I can know the presence of God in our lives. He has to be. Otherwise, he's just a good man. And you'll notice what follows. He is the image of the invisible God. Now we could spend, profitably spend the morning there, couldn't we? He's the image of the invisible. The only portrayal of the God who dwells in light, which is unapproachable, and who is known as the invisible God, the only portrayal that we have of him is the Lord Jesus. This is why Jesus is not Buddha, and not Confucius, and not Muhammad, and not anybody else save God. You understand? He is the image of the invisible In bygone generations, signet rings were used in order to seal a document. And they were usually emblazoned with something which demonstrated from whom the document came. So you had a document which was sealed in hot wax, and then you put the sealing signet ring on it, and it carried that image. And the wax carried the exact imprint of the original. That's the word here. It's not a construct. It's not something which is um, brought into being from the imagination of men. The Lord Jesus Christ is God, as another scripture says, God manifest in flesh. So he is the exact representation of the invisible. All that the Father as God is. Jesus Christ is. And you'll notice the use of the present tense, he is, all the way through this passage. I tried to emphasize it in the reading. He is the unchanging, unending reality of the expression of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. And then the statement of his primacy Please don't misunderstand the word firstborn to mean in the sense that he is the beginning of creation, that he is the first created one. That was one of the great fallacies. Indeed, the Colossians will have heard that about Jesus Christ when the apostle is writing. 
And what Paul is writing here is to demonstrate that Christ is other than creation. He's the firstborn. He's the, the one who brings it into being. And so you have the successive verses that follow. Now I recognize that for some Christians, this is not a popular doctrine. And that's a shame. Because the reality of the revelation of Jesus Christ as the image of the invisible God, the creator, is that he is the creator, necessarily. And I really find it, and I say this absolutely from the heart, I find it appalling that Christians no longer recognize the creatorial power of the Almighty. And I find it all over the country when I travel. And guys who think that, I use the Old Testament, well, the old-fashioned term, guys who think they're smart will come to me and say, do you actually still believe that God is the creator? And I usually say to them, with all my heart, because the alternative is nonsense. He either is who he is or he's not. And if you want to tailor your God to fit your particular notions, you have my sympathy, but you need to recognize the fallacy of what you're thinking about. Now, be as upset as you like and talk to me afterwards. I'd be really pleased about that. But I can't ignore what the Bible says. Now, I'm bound to this word. By him all things were created. What does that mean? What it says? By him all things were created. Things on heaven, things in heaven and on earth. All things. Without him there is no existence. You you see what he's saying? This is the portrayal of who this Lord is. He is the, in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And then he takes it into the realm of, of human condition and perhaps into the realm of the heavens. Because one of the, the fallacies of thinking in New Testament times was that there were all sorts of intermediaries between God and men. There are all sorts of funny things moving about in the universe. And if you read any of ancient history, you'll find them all there. The, the sort of gods that the Greeks believed in, who were responsible for fire and responsible for earth and responsible for this, that, and the other. The sort of gods that the Brits believed in, in the first century. And you'll find them easy to uncover in your local museums and so on. There was this, these sort of notions, you know, that these sort of all-in-betweeners, and they functioned so that God could somehow express himself to man in language that man could uh, understand. And Paul is, is directly attacking that. And he's saying, listen, all things were created by him before and for him, whether they're thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, whatever you've got in your mind, and you think they're somehow or other working uh, God to man, they're unreal. Because all things are under his control and his direction. And he manages, and I use the term absolutely carefully, he manages the universe. God is not someone who pressed a button and started it all off and then said, well, I'll leave them to get on with it. Quite the opposite. He's continually engaged in this. So he says in verse 17, he is 
before all things. That is, his existence is before all things. And one of the great central statements of Christianity and faith is that God is eternal, that he has no beginning and no end. And Christ being God necessarily is eternal. We often talk about the eternal father. Can you have an eternal father without an eternal son? We understand this coexistence perspective that the Trinity presents to us. He is who he is. And he is in existence before everything. Before the world's were, I am, the Savior said. Before Abraham was, I am. He is before all things. And then this great phrase, And in him all things hold together. I don't want to go on a hobby horse, and I don't want to be declamatory, but I do want to say what this means. The one who sustains the universe and its powers are not the laws of physics. Okay? In him all things consist. You understand? The scripture says elsewhere, in him we live and move and have our being. He is the sustainer of your life in the physical sense, of my life, of the functioning of the universe, of the things that are held together in such a way that when the Americans of all people got to the moon, they said we we arrived 0.3 of a second late. They didn't say the moon arrived 0.3 of a second early. Because in him all things consist. The laws that hold the universe together are part of who he is, if I can express it like that. He is who he is. And sometimes we make our Savior so small that we think he even forgets about us. How can we be so daft, you know? The Lord never forgets anything except our sin which he chooses to remember no more. And you and I are are brought into, you know, in him we have redemption, the previous verse at the start of this paragraph. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Because this is who he is. He, He works it all through according to his purpose. His majesty is such that if we make him less than he is, we ruin the perspective of who he is. And our lives become smaller as a consequence. And so often in our thinking, we make him less than he is. And then when we approach him in prayer, we think, well, I'm not sure the Lord can do anything about that, but I better pray about it just in case. And I'm paraphrasing, but I know that you think sometimes, as I think. Because we can get like this. And Paul says to these Colossian believers, he said, you might not know this, but this one in whom you have faith is the greatest in the, in the real sense of that term. There's no one like him. He is supreme. His majesty is unending. His purpose will always be fulfilled. Your life has been submitted to this one who is now in control of it so that you might know his fullness in your living and you might have this awareness from day to day of his majesty and greatness. And when I look to the heavens, I recognize the heavens declare the glory of God. 
Why is the North Star where it is? Because the Lord places it there. And it's held there. And you're going to say, oh, Peter, you know, you're getting into the realms of fantasy. Quite the opposite. Anything else is fantasy. This is revelation. I can't say the Lord is fantastic because he's not a, he's not a, a conduit of fantasy. He's marvelous. He's omnipotent. He's beyond the expression of my life as I'm demonstrating this today. But he, he's just immense. And we'll never get to the end of them. And that's what eternity is about. You know, I don't know if you ever thought about what it's going to be like to be there forever. And think to yourself, well, you know, how am I going to fill the time? Yeah. But he is who he is. And you have this constant day of revelation. I've got to go on. In him all things hold together. He is the, he is the super glue. And then he, he moves into a different realm. So he's talked about the Lord in relation to creation, which I've just touched on. But these people have become part of the church. They've become part of the body of Christ in New Testament terms. And so Paul writes in verse 18, And he is the head of the body. You fellows might have thought Epaphras was the head of the body. Or you might even think that the Apostle Paul is the head of the body. But I'm just part of the body. The head of the body is Christ. Now, what happens between the head and the body? Does the body direct the head or does the head direct the body? Yeah? When you guys get in your car, you ladies are driving home. I need to be careful what I say. Uh, who's, who's directing the operation of your hands and feet and your eyes and, and all the coordination that's required? We have a, we have a six-month-old, nearly seven-month-old uh, granddaughter. And as David Attenborough so wisely said when he was asked what was the most wonderful thing he had ever seen, he said a nine-month-old baby. He didn't recognize what he was saying, but that's what he said. And we have a seven-month-old granddaughter. And from day to day, she changes. And she learns things. And operates slightly differently. And her coordination improves. And you begin to recognize when she reaches for something, how careful she is. You know what she notices on her toys? The label. And she brings her forefinger and thumb together around the label. And she's not reading it. <laughs> Even though she's our granddaughter. <laughs> But, you know, there is this development. Sometimes people think somebody else is the head of the church. I say this carefully to each of our hearts this morning. You and I have one point of reference in relation to our walk with God and our church life. And it's the recognition that in all things he's the head. He's the boss. The direction comes from him. It's not the notions of the leaders. The direction for the church comes from the head. And each church in its time needs to find what the head would have them do. And from day to day, each of us individuals need to find what the head would have us do. He's the head of the body, the church. So the church as his body is directed by the head. Incidentally, you'll notice the church. It's not the churches, though there are various churches in the New Testament. It's the church 
this whole body from the beginning of Pentecost until the end of time. Christ remains the head. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. I wish you had time to go to John chapter 1, but I know you'll read it. That's your homework, Roy and Edith. John chapter 1, the first few verses. Revelation chapter 1, those of you who like doing homework, just follow this theme of him being the beginning. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. Without, of him, without him, there's no church. You understand what's being said? That's in this context. He is the beginning. Christ began the church. Yeah? Because of his redemption, which he accomplished, and the forgiveness of sins, which you know, it's all down to him. He is the beginning. The firstborn, again, he uses that term in the sense of position. The firstborn from among the dead. Doesn't mean there weren't other people who were resurrected before Christ. Lazarus, for example, the widow of Nain's son, others whose bones were directed by the prophets in the Old Testament. But Christ is the firstborn. In other words, without him and his position, there's no resurrection. That's Paul's theme, incidentally, in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want another bit of reading this week. That's what he's pointing up in 1 Corinthians 15 when he writes to that church at Corinth. He says, look, resurrection is in Christ, in him's life. Without him, there's no resurrection. And so he's saying it here. He's the firstborn from among the dead, get this, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. That's what being firstborn in this sense in which it's used in Colossians 1 to mean. It's about supremacy, it's about direction, it's about being the boss, if we can use that term. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So Christ is the expression of the fullness of God. That's what he's saying. All that God is, Christ is. All that you and I know of God, Christ brings to us. And you and I need to get back to these first principles. Through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. One of the things about the Apostle Paul's writings is you can hardly ever get away from the cross. He kept coming back to the death of Christ and his resurrection as the keystone to existence. He says, listen, when you're drifting a little bit in your faith, just get back to the cross. Some of our old hymn writers recognize that. You know, beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. The shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. When your soul's feeling a bit sore and you're feeling a bit oppressed, get back to where it all began. And the cross and the resurrection of Christ, as I've said just now, is the keystone of our faith. Why? Because through that we know reconciliation. It's a phrase which Paul picks up again and again in his writings. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 5, very clear in this particular area. This whole business of us being brought back to God. God doesn't need to be brought back to us. It's us who are alienated from God. So I have to be reconciled to God. And Christ is our mediator to bring us to God. And through his death and his resurrection, 
I, I can preach to any person, I have done in various places in the world, as you know, I can preach to any person of any age, from any background, in any circumstance, and say, listen, men and women, fellas and girls, if you want to know peace with God, just allow Christ to reconcile you to him. That's his business. He brings us into this position of friendship. Why? Because he made peace through his blood. Without Christ, we can't know peace with God because it's only through his blood. You know, the scripture is so clear and so emphatic in these sort of areas. He made peace through his blood shed on the cross, and through that we can be reconciled to God. So that means that I don't have to try any harder, doesn't it? You don't try to be reconciled. You accept reconciliation if someone else provides it for you. I've mentioned before Roy McGee, in fact I might have mentioned him last Sunday because he's been much in my mind recently. Roy McGee was the go-between between the Protestant paramilitaries and the other authorities in Northern Ireland. And he called them all together, all the leaders, about 40 of them, called them together in a little mission hall in Ballybean. And he said to them, fellas, the problem that we have got is that it wasn't the UDA or the UVF that committed these murders. It was you. And I want you to spend 10 minutes confessing to God your sin. That's some way to start talking to a bunch of hard men, isn't it? And I said to Roy in that wee cafe around the back of Scrabble, I said, Roy, what happened? He said there were tears. Sometimes we're not very sorry for our sin, are we? We make mistakes, we all do. But sometimes we're rampant in our disbelief. And sometimes we function against God because that's what we've chosen to do. And the Christ on his cross says to you and me, I want to reconcile you. I want to bring you back to God. I've made peace. Shed my blood on the cross to bring you back to God hard to accept isn't it I know because I suspect some of you here this morning are not yet Christians you've thought about it but it hasn't actually happened just accept it you know the way is clear Christ has dealt with our sin he says listen just come just come and let me bring you back to God. It'll be the greatest day of your life. Let's just say a prayer which will indicate our coming back to him as we close. Father, you know our hearts. You know we're sorry for the things we've done. And this morning we want to thank you that through your blood shed on the cross we can have peace with God. We want to come want to come back to our Father. Back to whom? Back to know you. Back to have our sins forgiven. And we just come simply to you again this morning and bring our lives and all their willfulness to you.
and ask for that sense of cleansing and forgiveness. We submit ourselves to your authority as we confess our sin to you and seek your blessing.